Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, the trade tensions between the U.S. and China just took another notch up again today as the Trump administration is moving ahead with discussions around possible restrictions on capital flows into China. To get the latest, we welcome Brendan Murray. Brendan covers all things trade for Bloomberg News. He joins us from our London bureau. Brendan, thanks so much for joining us. It seems like, again, this is a just another uh, piece of news in the back and forth between the U.S. and China on trade issues. Talk to us about this capital inflow uh, issue. Right. So this is an issue that uh, we reported on about 10 days ago, uh, that there were a broad range of, of, of things that the administration wanted to do to basically restrict uh, U.S. investments in Chinese assets, whether those be stocks or real estate or other kinds of holdings. Uh, what we're reporting today is that that, that search or the, the, that those plans have narrowed to uh, the kinds of investments that U.S. government retirement funds would make in things like Chinese stocks if, that, if those opportunities were made available, available to them, and they, and they will be uh, coming in 2020. So there is a time pressure uh, that the administration is working under there. I mean, basically, we're, talks start uh, Thursday, continue on Friday, and it's, this, they're supposed to be, uh, these are supposed to be the days of happy talk, saying, you know, these are the olive branches I'm, I'm bringing into, uh, into these negotiations. Instead, we're seeing escalation, escalation, and more escalation. Days of happy talk. And meanwhile, we are getting a blacklist of Chinese tech companies, the biggest hot button issue you could imagine. And the U.S. is citing human rights violations. Do you have a sense, Brendan, of why this is coming now as we are supposed to be hearing happy talk? Well, it's it's really hard to understand the uh, the coordination that's going on here. You're talking about multiple agencies uh, in the, in the case of the of the blacklisting, the Commerce Department. Uh, you know, the talks are actually led by the uh, U.S. Trade Representative. Uh, you had the president himself saying yesterday that he was hopeful that things could uh, you know Wait, things could come together for a deal. Brendan, so, are you saying that this could be actually just an unhappy coincidence? as far as timing goes, that, that this is absolutely could be unrelated and the Commerce Department's been working on this for a long time? Well, I'm not going to get into the. I'm not going to, you know, pretend to know what's going on in the minds of the people uh, uh, in the administration who are who are rolling these things out, um, you know, and, and whether they are, uh, you know, accidental or or on purpose. But uh, what we're seeing is a lot of puzzling uh, uh, moves uh, in terms of timing. If indeed you do want to secure a, 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 some sort of deal with China. So, Brendan, the Chinese have said, quote, stay tuned for retaliation over the U.S. tech blacklist. What is the expectation for what China might do in response? Well, there's a number of things that they could do, but basically they could start to make, uh, you know, the lives of American uh, exact business executives who are operating in China more difficult, um, you know, un uh, unannounced um, visits from regulators, and you know, are, are the kinds of things that uh, you know that that, that people would worry about. Um, but there's a whole range of things uh, that uh, you know that, that in terms of retaliating against the U.S. blacklist uh, that China could do that they haven't announced yet. They, they they pride themselves on not being you know knee-jerk reactionists, so it may take a couple days before we see that. It may be hours. We, we just don't know. Is there a sense that there could be a Chinese blacklist that you might find a company such as, you know, some of the big U.S. tech companies on there? 
Uh, there's there's uh, there's that potential for sure. Uh, you know, FedEx has uh, has a lot of operations in in China, and you know, there's some speculation, and there has been in the past that you know they, uh, that they could become you know swept up in this. So. Uh, who knows what chi- how far China is going to go in this retaliation, and and you know you know this could all be posturing ahead of the uh, ahead of these talks. So uh, it, there's just way too many moving pieces right now, and 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 very difficult to predict how the, how things will turn out. The people you speak to, is there a sense that there even could be? Uh, some sort of narrow deal uh, that is reached that could actually have weight and carry through based on the individuals coming and doing the negotiating here. Well, that's what we reported a couple days ago that 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 the the Chinese officials were coming to town uh, to Washington for, you know, what what's been described as a mini deal. Um, you know, a few, uh, you know, pl- pledges to buy U.S. agriculture goods in exchange for. You know, uh, taking a couple of those companies off the blacklist and things like that. So, there are there is there is a some silver lining that uh, you know that, that that the two sides could to, could get together and salvage something. Uh, but the uh, but the atmosphere right now, the atmospherics around, you know, uh, anything positive coming out of it are, are not great right now. Brendan Murray, thank you so much for joining us, and I'm sure we will be speaking with you again. Brendan Murray covers all things trade for us here at Bloomberg News, joining us from our London bureau. It is clearly a risk-off day today for financial markets, driven in large part by continued uncertainty about trade and what that uncertainty may do to global economic growth. And investors, as they look to the U.S., figure out trying to figure out what can the Federal Reserve do to perhaps offset some of the uh, slowing growth uh, brought about by trade tensions. To get a sense of that, we welcome our good friend Ira Jersey. He's a chief U.S. interest rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Joining us on the phone from BI's headquarters in Princeton, New Jersey. So, Ira, again, you know, kind of rearing its ugly head again is this whole economic growth uh, uncertainty and driven in large part by some trade concerns. And obviously that is on the Fed's mind. How do you think they are viewing kind of the slowing growth they're seeing globally? Yeah, well, I think I think Chair Powell said it at the last press conference, um, and actually the last several press conferences is they look at the whole economic situation, whether it's being driven by, you know, kind of artificial trade tensions that are driven by politics more than uh, actual, you know, free markets and letting um, economic reality do its thing. So I, I think that that the Fed is going to have to be easy, and they're going to continue to be easy. The markets basically priced for two hikes over their next three Fed meetings. So. Um, you know, I think the market's already kind of set up for that. I, I think the, the issue that the Fed has at this point is they can only do monetary policy. They can't do fiscal policy. They can't do tax policy. They can't do any of the other um, other types of policies that might actually help the, uh, the economic situation. So they're going to do what they can, but what they can do is limited, and the market's already kind of priced for, uh, for quite a lot of easing. And there are some Fed members who are saying – you guys, why are we cutting rates in response to geopolitical uncertainty? Just because inflation isn't taking off to exact the degree that we'd like doesn't necessarily mean that this is the medicine that's required. How significant of a voice do those people have? So I, th- I think that obviously they have a voice because they sit around the table and you had two dissenters who didn't want to cut rates at the September meeting. I, I think that the, uh, the I-, I think that their point uh, that a lot of them are 
are are making is that look the economy while while slow is not is significant is not terrible yet and we only have so many uh, we only have so many arrows in our quiver so we don't want to use all of our arrows now because we know that in in the future if we do get a more sustained and larger slowdown we will have to use them um, well the other part of the committee the people who are the more dovish right now and want to keep cutting say well we want to cut now because we don't want to wait until the economy is already bad in order to get in front of this and and you know they'll, they'll point to the the traditional long and variable lags of, that monetary policy works in as the evidence for them needing to needing to cut now um, but but either way I mean even if the Fed were to cut a little bit more slowly the market is still going to think maybe the terminal rate will be lower than than the market's thinking right now so the market right now is thinking the Fed's going to cut two or three more times and then they're going to stop the uh, I think if they were to slow down their number of cuts the market would think okay they're only going to cut every other meeting or every third meeting but they're going to cut to zero right so that that ends up being a, a, a pretty interesting market story if ultimately we start to price for that type of, uh, of Fed reaction. So, Ira, um, give us your sense of how the Fed might think about its balance sheet. Is there any scenario where you see it kind of growing its balance sheet, recognizing that perhaps uh, the interest rates, arrows in its quivers are, are, are limited? Well, I, I think that they're going to start increasing their balance sheet actually in November, uh, and they'll do that through what, what they'll, they'll phrase as organic balance sheet growth, and we call it QE light. It's not outright quantitative easing, but it's the it, it's their goal is to keep uh, bank reserves stable because right now bank reserves continue to decline because other liabilities on the Fed's balance sheet are going up, and that and and reserves tends to be the equalizer there. So so we do think that they'll do that. Now, will they do uh, large scale asset? purchases, a significant amount of, of buying increased bank reserves. I think that they will do that, but they'll wait until uh, interest rates are near zero or just about at zero. So you'd probably have to see uh, the zero lower bound kind of in sight again before uh, before the Fed would do that. So I still think that we're probably, you know, at the earliest, probably the middle of 2020 uh, before they start large-scale asset purchases. But I also think that you need to see a much, much slower economy than we're seeing right now, at least domestically in the U.S. So uh, please, Ira, look into your crystal ball, and it often has information about interest rates in your crystal ball, because it's a very specific crystal (laughs) ball. Uh, And tell us, what is the next big move? Is it going to be lower, or is it going to be higher in benchmark U.S. rates? I think I think ten-year yields will probably uh, will probably retest the, uh, the the this cycle's lows. So we're talking about about one one thirty-ish on uh, on ten-year Treasuries before uh, before we stabilize. Because I do think that there's a lot of risks out there that the market's going to be um, going to be thinking about before we can get some stabilization in the economy. So the next big move is going to be lower, 130s right now. Uh, we are seeing 10-year yields lower, but still uh, far away from that. We're, no, not far. Let's it's not about be. 22 basis points. 22 yeah. basis points. It's 22 basis points. It felt like so far. We're at 1.5% uh, right now, and we are getting close to those all-time lows uh, that we saw back in 2013. Ira Jersey, thank you so much for being with us. Ira Jersey, Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, Chief uh, Chief. Bloomberg suspender wearer. Actually, no. He yes. he corrected me. He doesn't call them suspenders. Braces. Braces. Yes. I, I, you know, <laughs> who knows?
There is a question at a time of record low bond yields around the world. So you continue to go with the flow and expect yields to go lower on longer term securities or do you hide? Do you say, you know what? This cannot last. Joining us now, Eddie Vitaro. He is lead portfolio manager of the Osterweiss Total Return Fund. Uh, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Eddie, I guess that, you know, that's one big debate right now. Is it time to sort of cash in on the flight to longer term securities, sell them, buy short term notes and hold on? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Uh, you know, when you look at yields and, and think about what an investment in fixed income is, you don't have the upside of equities where you have some kind of asymmetric upside for, for buying a, a cash flow that is going to pay you par at the end. So frankly, when you're buying a 10-year treasury now, you're looking at a 150 yield. That's, from a long-term perspective, a pretty unattractive investment. Uh, if you think that yield can go lower, sure, you, you, you follow along. But I think you know, for folks that have more of a, a longer-term view of the markets, you know, these rate levels are not, not compelling entry points for fixed income investment. So what does what do you think the average fixed income investor is doing or should be doing in this market here? Do you, do you go down in credit quality looking for yield and hope the economy stays pretty firm? What do you do? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the economy is going to stay firm, but I think it's a little bit risky to go down in credit quality uh, just in a hunt for yield. There's certainly some names as you go down in quality that have uh, redeeming qualities as investments that you want to be invested in. But when you're looking at, at, at the market as a whole, I think you need to be very careful about what names you pick. Uh, and I would recommend kind of shortening in yield, uh, taking whatever positive return the market gives you and waiting uh, for rates to recast down the road to, to make a longer term investment. What's the catalyst for higher rates? Well, we, we had that catalyst a couple years ago, but obviously the tides have turned. Uh, we need some resolution to what's going on in terms of all of the unrest that we have with our headlines, whether it's tweets, Brexit, uh, obviously, the, the trade situation with China is, has kind of cast a pall across all fixed income markets. You, you need some resolution or some hope of resolution uh, to, to kind of come back to the fore. I would argue that what we've seen in the U.S. so far is we've seen rate cuts that have been more protective rather than actually reflective of our economy. But if we, if we continue to see uh, decreased sentiment, if we continue to see uh, markets that, that are on edge, uh, you know, we're going to have lower rates for a while. Uh, we really need to see some resolution to that. So, again, getting some resolution to some of the bigger macro issues. In the interim, I mean, how do you think about allocation between investment grade and high yield and, and so on and so forth? Yeah, I mean, I, I think investment grade is a good place to be. Within investment grade, I actually like mortgages here against corporates and treasuries. Uh, I, I think that some of the fears of refinance risk that, that go into mortgage valuations are, are I think, a little bit overdone. Uh, but again, I think it's important to pick your spots. With mortgages, you don't have the credit risk. You don't have to worry if you're going to be made whole on your investment, which is a nice quality about MBS, and you, you do get paid incremental yield there. But I think corporates offer value too, as long as you focus on names that make more sense, that are more, that are more stable. So here's the conundrum right now. We have seen an incredibly bifurcated credit market where you see the higher quality names have done better, right? So you're getting even less yield. Right. So any rally that you get in those securities, where does it come from? Well, at this point, it comes from treasury yields, which are already quite deflated as they are. So when you go into these higher quality names, mm -hmm. are you looking for returns or are you looking for avoiding losses? It's really, you certainly are looking to avoid losses and you are getting some incremental return by owning a high grade corporate instead of a treasury. 
So you might earn, you know, 50, 75, 100 basis points over a duration match treasury, which with yield levels where they are, that is a, a compelling uh, opportunity. So it doesn't really matter necessarily whether you think that they're going to necessarily gain value on a price level, meaning that they will continue to do better. Uh, it, it more just matters that you get that extra incremental yield. Am I getting that correctly? Yeah, I, I think you can look at it that way. I just think that the you know one of the things that's come up uh, is this notion of negative yields globally, and we've seen them in Europe, and we haven't seen them in the U.S. And you know the notion of of investing in longer duration in the U.S. now requires you to think that that is something that could be in our realm of possibility down the road. I don't think it can happen in the U.S for reasons that are related to the structural composition of the U.S. bond market, including the big component that is mortgages, which adds a lot of uh, supply to the market when interest rates fall. We don't see that globally. We only see it in the U.S., which is part of the reason I think domestic rates are higher than they are globally, part of the reason. Uh, but that being said, I, you know, I, I prefer to stay defensive, and I do think that uh, if you buy shorter maturity, high-quality names and you know, book a 2 2.5% return in the short term, that's fine. That's, that's not fine for me. I, as Lisa knows, I want, I'm willing to take risk. So where should I go for a little bit more return than the 2%? Does it have to stay within fixed income? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that could be a little trickier. Um, you know, like I said, if, if, if you have some acumen with picking uh, specific securities, uh, if you're looking at, at funds, I would probably look at, at, at active funds that have demonstrated an ability to pick securities that are down in credit that, that could be uh, compelling, that give you more yield than investment grade might give you. Uh, but again, it's really gonna come down to uh, finding individual securities or names that make the most sense uh, in this market because you know you do not wanna just categorically reach right. for yield. Right, Eddie Vitaro, thanks so much for joining us. Eddie's the lead portfolio manager of Osterweiss Total Return Fund based in San Francisco, but joining us live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, giving us some thoughts on the fixed income market, as we heard earlier with John Micklethwaite uh, from Bloomberg talking to Manny Roman from uh, PIMCO. Not an easy market to make That's what I was going to say. You know, this, is, this is a tough market. This and is the a tough question market. is, do you just go for, I guess, cash preservation? Yes, and take your 2% yield and book it. The fallout just keeps deepening when we look over to China and when it comes to the NBA. It was supposed to be the first U.S. league to host games in China. Those may now be torpedoed. Uh, joining us now in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios is Evan Novi-Williams, a sports business reporter and for us here at Bloomberg News. Evan, What's the latest here on this sort of blowing up controversy over the NBA in China? Yeah, so the NBA right now is in Tokyo nearby. You know, they're playing games right now in Japan. So Adam Silver has been talking kind of in, in the night here in the U.S., trying to clarify his position and the position of the league. Uh, and overnight, he made it clear that, you know, he was not in a, he was not trying to criticize Daryl Morey's right to say whatever he wants to say about protests in Hong Kong. And as a result, CCTV, which is the state-run TV network in China, the one that was going to be broadcasting these two preseason games coming up later this week in China, they announced that they would not be broadcasting either of those games, uh, which is a pretty big deal, right? So so that's kind of where we are right now. Adam Silver is kind of in damage control. And as a result of what he is saying, there's been more retribution coming from, from, from Chinese businesses. I mean, he is... A 
Adam Silver's in it. To me, it seems like an incredibly difficult decision. Give us a sense of kind of how important China is to the NBA. It seems like they've got a much bigger presence there than any of the other big U.S. sports. Yeah, I would call Adam's position impossible okay. <laughs> right now. <laughs> yeah, beyond difficult. Uh, yeah, so just to give you some numbers real quick, the, the amount of people in China that watched NBA content last year, 800 million people, right? So that's two and a half times the entire population of the U.S. The, the addressable market in China is enormous, and the NBA is the most popular league there. And I, ironically, Daryl Morey, who works for the Rockets, the Rockets are the most popular team uh, of the NBA um, in, in China. But yeah, so you know the, the NBA has billion-dollar broadcast deals uh, in, in China from the digital and the TV side. There are a number of sponsors, companies that are based in China that, that, that partner with both the league as a whole and with individual teams. I mean, it's, it's not an exaggeration to say that NBA China, which is kind of what they incorporated in 2008, that that is a billion-dollar enterprise. And moving forward, 10 or 15 years could be multiple, multiple billions. Is it surprising to people within the industry that one tweet from one manager could drive this degree of backlash from China. Yeah, I think I think it is and you know the, the the criticism a lot of the criticism that the NBA is getting right now is that, you know, players and coaches and even general managers are very outspoken often about political issues in the US and the NF NBA has been encouraging of, of their, you know, their right to speak out and the things that they're saying uh, and it does seem I think for a lot of people that, you know, the, the quick backlash that came after Daryl Morey's tweet which he deleted I believe just a couple of minutes after he <laughs> sent it um, that that they might not be giving him the same kind of leeway that they often give their players and coaches for 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 political issues here in the US. I think the one major difference is that the backlash came so quickly from Chinese businesses that un unlike the backlash that I'm sure they've seen when the Miami Heat take the floor with I can't breathe t-shirts etc the backlash came so quickly that everybody all the stakeholders in the NBA felt like they also had to act, had to react as quickly as, as well one group that I haven't really heard that much from is owners in the league uh, other than Joe Tsai the owner of the Brooklyn uh, Nets and is a, a Chinese American in full disclosure he's a, a personal friend of mine but he came out with a, a statement trying to explain I think maybe the how the view from the Chinese side how are the Chinese viewing this and trying to maybe build a little bit of a bridge there but other than that haven't really heard much from the owners yeah Joe has been as you said you know he put out a 750 word letter essentially detailing the, the kind of the historical grievances that a lot of mainland Chinese people feel against you know imperialism and also their own you know right to, to territorial sovereignty um, my guess is that most NBA owners are thinking I don't want to get anywhere near this thing I mean <laughs> generally speaking where the NBA wants to be on issues like this is neutral and the only way that you can be neutral is if you don't say anything at all right and unfortunately Daryl tweeting meant that the, the league had to say something and therefore had to take a side in some capacity you know so in Adam Silver's ideal world like Daryl never says anything he never says nobody ever says anything about it and, and it continues on in, in its unifying kind of neutral way um, and yeah I think that's kind of part of the problem so I don't think I don't think you're going to hear many NBA owners weighed in on this because it's kind of impossible to do it in a way that doesn't lean one way or the other and as we've seen in the past couple days leaning one way or the other is bound to anger a lot of people either way what's the sort of pushback going to be within China if these games are canceled? Yeah, so that's a, a great question. And, and right now, the NBA, as we speak, is still planning to play these two preseason games uh, in, on Thursday and Saturday uh, in China. 
Uh, my guess, if, if I had to kind of read through what I, I think is in the crystal ball, I think the NBA ends up being okay long-term in China. I mean, basketball is tremendously popular. I don't think the sport is going to lose popularity. Where I would be concerned is that there's a good chance that the Rockets, who enjoyed you know, dating back to Yao Ming's time through Tracy McGrady and now James Harden, they have been one of, if not the most popular teams in China. I do wonder if, if they may lose that mantle. And that if we were to look back on this incident three or four years from now, the truth may be that the NBA is just as popular and their business is just as vibrant in China. However, a lot of the people who were diehard Rockets fans are now rooting for maybe Joe Ty's team, the, the Brooklyn Nets, maybe are rooting for the Lakers because they like LeBron. That the, the, They may lose some fans and also lose sponsors and partners in China, but, but that the end result for the league as a whole may, may be not as bad as it looks right now. Well, we've got, it's interesting, we've got the Nets and the Lakers over there now, mm-hmm. and, so, and, and do you expect, uh, it seems like there might be some news over the next few days, so stay tuned, right? Cause Absolutely, you, yeah. The, I mean, I, the, I think there is a, a decent chance that these games end up not happening. Um, I think everybody in, in, in my world, and, and I think a lot of fans out there, are waiting for it to see what LeBron has to say, right. and, and you can, I promise you that, that if these games do happen, he will be addressing the media in some capacity when, he, when he's over there. Uh, Adam Silver, you know, as of right now, is planning to fly to to Shanghai, I believe, later today or yep. maybe even tomorrow. He will have to, to talk even more. We'll hear more about this as, you know, the NBA's executives and its biggest stars land in China in the next couple couple hours. Eben Novi Williams, sports business reporter for Bloomberg News. Thank you so much. Uh, Eben joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Uh, note that you can tune into the business of sports with Eben, Scott Soshnick, and Michael Barr throughout the weekend on Bloomberg Radio. Check out the podcast anytime at Bloomberg.com and at iTunes. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.